Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. And we'll read just three verses this morning, just to start us off. Daniel chapter 7, verse 24 says, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and to think, change, uh, and, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand. Unto, until a time and times and the dividing of a time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. Let's commit this time to the Lord, and we'll see what he has for us today. Father, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you that we can trust every word within it. We thank you that you've delivered it to us, um, untainted and perfect. We thank you for uh, the freedom that we have to be able to enjoy it uh, in our own lives, in our private time, but also when we come together uh, to learn and feed from it. So we ask for your blessing today as we seek to grow through it. We pray that our hearts would be open, that you would um, uh, liven our minds, Lord, that we might understand your truths. I pray that you would keep the devil away, that he might not snatch away the seeds that uh, your word uh, might sow within our hearts today, but that those seeds may go down deep into our souls and that they would bear fruit for your glory. We thank you once again for your love and grace and we pray for it today. We pray for more of it, that we might glorify you and please you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things I learnt, I've learnt over the years um, when it comes to reading the Bible is understanding the importance of who it's referring to, who it's speaking to. Because sometimes we, we have a temptation to automatically assume that what's being said is applicable to everyone evenly. And the answer to that is normally no. Because the Bible tells us to rightly divide the word. Okay, So those who, who seek to understand the Bible properly are dividing it and then aiming it at the right direction. So in some cases... Things in the Bible refer to all of the church, refer to people all to all of time. Sometimes it's referring to the Jews only. Sometimes it's referring to the church only. Sometimes it's referring to different groups of people or different segments of people. So one of the things that we see that's happening in our day is this mixing of what the Bible refers to when it comes to prophecy about the future, mixing and taking out things that are referring specifically to the Jews and not to the church. And when they mix up, when you mix up those things, you end up heading into all types of error. Now, we've reached a point in our series where we've come to this place where the armies of the world have gathered in a particular place in Israel. And this place is suspected is called Megiddo or the, the Kidron Valley, which is another option that you might have, but essentially there's a 200 million man army that has that has come to Israel for a specific purpose. And God is about to judge the armies of the world that have, that have come to that place because they have come there at the direction of 
the Antichrist, the false prophet, and ultimately the devil himself. So just as a recap quickly, as we've seen already, the final kingdom is made up of 10 kings or begins with 10 kings. They are then led by the Antichrist, who the Bible calls the little horn uh, or the beast. And those kingdoms are powered by deceptive devils or demons that are governing spirits that the devil has put in place to actually control mankind. There is a person who the Bible speaks of as a false prophet who will, because of his demonic miracles that he does, will be able to fool a whole range of people and many people to believing that this person, who we know as the Antichrist, is the actual Messiah that has been promised in pretty much most of the world's religions. He will then force those who resist that to worship. He will force people in the world to worship the beast and his image, and he will force everyone to take either um, a mark from him, which will go in the skin, in your right hand, or in your forehead. And to that end, it may be something like a tattoo that goes under the skin or something along those lines. But it's not just one thing. So you've, you've probably heard that it's a chip, right? Well, it's not necessarily a chip because the scriptures clearly tell us that it's either three things. It can be either his name, it can be his number, or it can be his mark, or it can be his symbol. So when someone says to you, oh, it's definitely this, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it's you have an option. So, you know, today when you when you go to get your um, your vaccine and they say, which one would you like, sir? And you say, which one gives me the less side effects? And they'll, they'll recommend to you, well, they're not recommending AstraZeneca anymore, but it looks of it, but, but there's AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, whatever it is. And for those of us who are waiting for Novavax, that's gone out the window anyway. Um, but you have an option. It's going to be like that. So you're going to have an option. Which one would you like, sir? Would you like his name? engraved or would you like his number or would you like his special symbol or his mark and people will have that option and i suspect that coming to that particular time if you're going if you're going to be one of those people that prefers to have it on their head you're going to be one of his special devotees okay because you can either if you have it on if you have the option to have it on your right hand so you can just show it as a mark when you go and buy something or sell something that's going to be highly different to someone who says, I want to write on my head. Okay. And what the devil does is he always counterfeits what God does. Because if you've read Revelation, you would have also read that God's servants are marked during that time. And they're marked with his symbol on their foreheads. God does that. So what does the devil do? If you want to follow me, you mark yourself as well to show your love for me. Okay. So understand the devil always counterfeits what God actually does. But if you don't, if you choose not to get that mark or take or have his name or have his number recorded on you somewhere, um, you don't get to buy or sell at all. You don't get to it. You can't even buy online. Your accounts will be shut. Your bank accounts will be closed. You won't be able to do anything at all. So it's not what's happening today but it's much, much worse, okay? 
But according to these verses we've just read from Daniel, the Antichrist, says, shall wear out the saints. He's going to wear them out. Now, what does it mean to wear out something? Well, it means to consume them so there's not, not much left of them. He's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. He's going to think to change times and laws in a way that directly influence and affect them. Because have, have you read that? I'm sure you've read that many times. He's going to think to change times and laws. But what times and laws are you thinking of changing? Obviously, times and laws that affect those people. And I'll tell you why it's those people. Because those people will seek to rebuild their temple. And they're not rebuilding their temple because they already believe in Jesus. They're rebuilding their temple so they can restart the sacrificial system from Moses. The Levitical system. They haven't believed in Jesus yet. They want to just restart the Old Testament stuff. And so who? how many laws and times do they observe? Plenty. The Jews observe the Sabbath. They observe high and holy days. They observe all different seasons and new moons and, and things of that nature. And this person will seek to create laws that stop them from doing that directly. And he will change laws which will affect them directly as well. So he's going to seek to change these things. He's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. And the, the emphasis here is on Jewish believers. In fact, the prophecies concerning the Jews in the final days supposes, supposes that they haven't accepted Christ yet. Okay? So when that deal is first made at the beginning of the seven years, for those three and a half years, they're, re, they're building that temple, and it's going to be huge, right? Um, they don't believe in Christ yet. They want to reinstitute what they had going before. They just haven't got a temple to do it in. Um, during this time, where's the church? It ain't here. The church is taken out of the way. As Thessalonians tells us, before this Antichrist can pop his head up and reveal himself who he is, because we know who he is because he's the one that makes the deal. He's the one that creates the covenant. He's the one who has the authority to sign off on it. He is the huge peacemaker here, where that allows the Jews to rebuild the temple, but also keep the peace from all the, all the, uh, the neighbors they have around them, which don't necessarily like them. He's going to be able to do that. So at that particular point, we know who the Antichrist is. We don't know who he is yet. And, but the, the Bible teaches that before he reveals himself, we're not here anymore. Because at the moment, the one who is withholding him, who's holding him back, is the Holy Spirit who works through you and me. The ones who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who have the word of God and the power of the word of God and understand these things. So before he can come out and do whatever he wants to do, the ones, the one who is restricting him and holding him back needs to be sort of taken out of the picture. And so the church is raptured before he reveals himself. If the church was still here, you and I would be blowing trumpets 24-7 about who this person is. We'd be, we'd be on Facebook 24 Don would be on Facebook, sure, posting stuff and, and you know, posting special segments of himself. I know who it is. I know who it is. It's this one. It's this one. Look what the Bible teaches here. It'd be all over the place. Every Christian who has any idea about uh, um, the prophecy would understand what that is. So... 
the emphasis here is on Israel because when we're out of the picture, who's left to actually interpret the word of God properly to understand who this person is? There will be no one left. It starts from essentially scratch again. And the people who have the Bible now will be the ones who are not interpreting it right at the moment, who aren't born again. The Christendom type of Christians who were born into it, if you know what I mean. Okay. And they don't have any idea or they don't believe the literal seven years of, of the tribulation. They don't believe in the literal return of Christ. They don't believe in a literal antichrist. They don't believe in a literal false prophet. So they're not going to be looking for it. Neither will they recognize it. In fact, they will be probably the ones who actually try to persecute the believers who come to believe during the tribulation and there will be millions of them that come to faith during the tribulation period but most of them will be killed for what they believe because the persecution will be fierce so when the antichrist says he's going to wear out that when the bible says here he's going to wear out the the saints of god the focus here on jewish believers which come after the tribulation starts and after the beast has been revealed and who believe and who believe in christ and reject him because at the three and a half year mark he walks into the temple they've built and he says you know what i'm god you stop those sacrifices to your god over there you start doing them to me and you know what uh the false prophet's going to set up a nice statue of him which is going to move somehow and it's going to speak and it's going to be coming alive and they're going to be told to worship that at that point many of the Jews will realize we've been conned here. We've been fooled. This guy is the opposite of what, we're, what we've looked for. And so um, they will reject him. And that's why out of 22 chapters of Revelation, you don't hear anything about the church after chapter 3. After chapter 3, there is no church in the book of Revelation. Almost all the inferences, all the, all the references are to Jews, are to Israel again, which is really strange when you think about it, but it's not because that's the way God has planned it. So one of the biggest errors we see that confuses people concerning the whereabouts of the church in the final days is reading the church into portions of Scripture that have to do with Israel. And when you do that, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. It actually confuses the whole thing. And the length of, length of time we're looking at here, specifically when it concerns things of Israel, are the last three and a half years before this final battle. It's three and a half years, and it's mentioned over and over and over again in the Bible. It has to do with the time of what's called Jacob's trouble. Not the time of the church's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jacob, they, when you talk about Jacob's trouble, they're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And last time I checked, anyone here a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. So it says there, if verse 25, it says, And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of a time. They will be given into his hands. If the reference here is primarily for Jewish believers in those days. 
let me give you an idea. Let me give you a, a passage that might help to clarify. There was once a day when Jesus and his disciples were walking out of the temple in Israel, right? So the when the temple was still standing, they walked out of the temple, this huge, magnificent building. And to give you an impression of how big this building is, have any, who's been to the MCG here? That's a decent-sized building, isn't it? All right. The temple is about two of those. So to give you an idea of how much, how big this thing was, it was twice the size of the MCG. That's how big the land it was, okay, that it was on. It was huge. It was magnificent. So as they were walking out, one of his disciples turned to Jesus and said, Look, Lord, at these amazing stones. Look how wonderful this building actually is. And they then asked Jesus a question about, about, Jesus answered, and then they asked him a question about the end of all these things. And Jesus answers in a very specific way. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Matthew chapter 24, verse That's 24, one says, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the building of the temp buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things. Verily, I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So can you imagine the look on their faces when they see this massive structure with huge blocks of stone? And he says to them, there's not going to be one stone left on top of another over here. And what you looked at as probably as eternal as the pyramids, all of a sudden Jesus says, no, nah, this is all going to be destroyed. And that happened in 70 AD. The Romans came in, surrounded the place because the Jews were trying to um, uh, rebel against them. And they destroyed the whole thing. They tore the whole thing down, set it on fire. And all we see now is the Wailing Wall, essentially, which is one of the foundations, not even the, the, the superstructure. But look at verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when these things shall be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. So they asked him that. In the, in the Gospel of Mark, it actually says that it was um, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew who came to him specifically and asked him his questions. So they asked him about these three questions. When is this going to happen? When is the end of the world and the sign of your coming? So they knew he was going to go and he was going to come back. And what would be that sign? So look at verse four. Let's see how Jesus answers. And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, see that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and this shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So Jesus warned his disciples that they would hear of false Christs, and they would hear of false prophets, and that would that would come naturally. We've had two thousand years 
of false prophets and false messiahs who have come through. And he also says you're going to hear of wars and famines and pestilences and earthquakes, but that's not the end. The end is not that. Okay. Since Christ was on earth, we've experienced many wars, many. I mean, Rome was sacked by the, by the barbarians, by all the barbarian tribes that came in from the north. Can you imagine that if you're living in Rome? Can you imagine the whole, the whole of uh, the Melbourne being completely overtaken okay? and, uh, and the, the armies destroyed? Well, that happened in Rome. Um, we've seen huge amount of numbers of wars in Europe between various countries and people trying to... Um, did, anyone know, did anyone know what Prussia is? Does Prussia exist today? No. Why does but Prussia was one of the one of the strongest uh, uh, countries in Europe for a long, long period of time. It doesn't even exist anymore. Why? Because of wars. Okay. There have been plenty of wars in Europe over the uh, over the years. We've seen the rise and expanse of Islam after 700 AD, roughly. Where they, where they were growing and growing, overtook vast numbers of countries, were going into Europe, took Spain at one particular point, okay, until they were uh, forced out again. Uh, we saw Genghis Khan. He, he was a, had a huge army, came in, wars all over the place, destroyed plenty of, uh, of, of armies. We've seen multiple wars over the Holy Land, all the Crusades that have, that have happened. We've seen civil wars, wars of independence. We've had two world wars, Korean, the Korean War, the, 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 the Vietnam War, and so on and so on and so on. There've been plenty of wars. Now, if you're, if you're experiencing a war a thousand years ago, was that the end of the world? Well, no. And you've probably would have experienced some pretty bad wars. Okay. We've seen also plenty of plagues have hit the, the world over time. I mean, if you're around for the Black Plague, I don't think you would have enjoyed it. 30% of the people died in Europe. Died. You literally had to leave your, your loved one outside on the street for people to come and collect them. And 30%, can you imagine 30% of Melbourne passed away? That would have been probably a pretty bad time. Maybe that thought the end of the world was then. But there have been plenty of, of plagues and diseases that have ravaged populations throughout the last 2,000 years. I mean, COVID's killed roughly 5 million, they're saying. Compared to some of these other ones, I mean, the Spanish flu killed 50 million. Now, if you were back in those days, without the medicines that we have today and technology, things would look pretty grim. You wouldn't have known how long you might have survived for. But we've seen horrific earthquakes over the, over the years. Uh, including a tsunami in remember in Japan that that wiped out a lot of that country as well. It killed many many people. There are plenty of bad events that have happened over the years, but these are not indications that the end is here. This is my point. So sometimes, uh, sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, the end is here because of COVID." Well, if this is the persecution that we are going to experience as a church, mate, bring it on even more. I, I, it, it feels like it just turned up the heat a couple of degrees. You know what I mean? It's not even, it's not even hot. Not that I'm, I want more of it, but the point is the church doesn't, hasn't experienced persecution yet at all. Um, it has nothing. What's going on in this society and Australia and all around the world has nothing to do with, with Christian persecution at all. The persecution will come, an underground church will come when and if Christianity becomes illegal. And it's not. So Jesus describes these sorts of things as like, you know, pregnancy pains. 
Who's been pregnant here? Yeah. Lee, put your hand down. But pregnancy pains come when you get, you know, when the when the baby starts growing and things start changing and you get sore backs and everything else can go wrong. You know, those sorts of things come. But the, it doesn't happen overnight. Do you know what I mean? Like you're not about to have the baby. You know what I mean? It's, it takes a while still for those things to, you know, for, for labor pains to set in. So it's what happens after this that Jesus makes an emphasis on. And this is referring to the tribulation. So look at verse 9. Look, he says, so these are only the beginning of sorrows. He goes, look, don't worry so much about those. But this is what he says to focus on. Then, this is after them, shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Who is the Lord speaking to here? And for what purpose is he speaking this? He's speaking this to tell them there's going to come a time in the future when they will be hated by all nations. Who? Who were they? Who's he speaking about here? Well, he's speaking about the Jews specifically because they're going to be the ones. Remember when the Antichrist walks into that temple and proclaims himself to be God, what do they do? Do they say, yes, we'll happily worship you? They say no. They reject him. You know what they, they, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. They rejected him as their king and they will reject him. And they will, they will realize that he is in, in fact a false messiah and they will be hated. Remember, the whole world will love the Antichrist. And when he does that, they're not going to be wrapped when he, when he actually does that. But the Jews are going to realize something's gone wrong. And they're going to reject him. And the world will hate them because they've rejected the one they love the most. This is not a prophecy for Christians, although when it comes to persecution, Christians have been, have been persecuted throughout all of the last 2,000 years. And persecution should come. Uh, one of the things I, I continue to, to, to preach and teach is that if there is, if you suffer no persecution in your life, no tribulation, no, no, no one ever saying anything bad about you, you're probably not living a life that God has called you to. You're probably not speaking up where you should. Does that make sense? Because we're not meant to swim with the rest of the fish in the same direction. We're meant to be swimming in the opposite direction. So naturally they'll look at us and say, why are you going in that direction when I'm going in this direction? And so our lives should be a testimony of what we believe. But too many Christians these days are living lives just wanting to go with the flow of everyone else. Okay? Their, their focus is on the same thing as everyone else's focus is on. This world. And it should not be. Our, our, our focus, our attention should be firmly on Christ. Should be firmly in heaven. From heaven. We should be looking down on the earth from heaven's perspective. And that will change the way we live. Look at verse 11 now. Jesus promises. So he says, you're going to be hated by the, the whole world. You're going to be persecuted by the whole world. And then he says, and many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And he that shall endure unto the end, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. 
And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So why are many false prophets coming rising up? Well, in the end, if there's a false prophet, guess what he's got? If he's the Pope, if he's the, the, the cardinal, the bishop, whatever he is, right? If he's the ruler of the false prophets, he's going to have a whole band of false prophets. He's going to have a whole religion set up. Who are going to be the priests who are, go who are going to be administering this religion to worship the Antichrist? All these false prophets that will all rise up all at the same time at, towards the end, in the last seven years. So Jesus says, many false prophets shall rise. We know many false prophets have, have occurred during the years, but in this time, there will be a, literally a whole squadron of them. There will be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them all pointing and saying that the, the Antichrist is the Messiah. And people will turn on one another because if you don't worship the Antichrist, you're going to be pointed out. You're going to be spotted. If you haven't got the mark, you're going, to, you're going to come under a great deal of persecution because you don't fit into the rest of society. It'll be obvious that you don't fit and, and things will dramatically get worse and worse. But notice it says here, did you notice it says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached? Do you remember that? Do you know there's a difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel that we preach today? The gospel that we preach today is primarily focused upon the, the sacrifice that Christ made on that cross when he shed his blood for the world, for the sin of the world, that we might be saved through that blood. But you know what the gospel of the kingdom? Because Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom when he first came. And he wasn't preaching that he was already dead on the cross and, and, and paid for the sins of the world. He was preaching what? That he was the Messiah the king of Israel, the rightful king of the world. And that's the gospel that will be preached again in the end. This gospel of the kingdom will be that Jesus is the king of Israel, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Yes, it's going to obviously include now the fact that he died for the sins of the world and you still have to get saved the same way, but you have to accept him as your king you know why because someone else has put up their hand for that job and you're now going to have a choice between those two while the world is saying that the antichrist is the king is the messiah the gospel will go out that he's not that jesus is the messiah and that's the gospel of the kingdom because the gospel of the kingdom is about a king and people will have chosen their king. As I've said, people still get saved by grace through faith. The gospel is the same with respect to salvation. But the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom will include the fact that Jesus is the king of Israel. And what it shows is that the Jews have come to believe in him. What that will show is that the Jews have now received him as their king. They've now put their trust in him. And who are going to be the primarily the ones who are preaching? They will be. They will be the one who are telling the entire world that
that Jesus is the king, their rightful king and indeed the king of the world. And the revelation goes so far as to tell us there's going to be 144,000 Jewish men who will be the primary preachers of the world. And the, the Antichrist and the, the false prophet will seek to kill them as, as quickly as possible. And they will declare that Jesus is the saviour and the rightful king of the world, and they will openly reject the Antichrist. And this will make them marked individuals. You know, there are some people at the moment who are trying to say that the scriptures refer to, these, that this refers to now. That, 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 that we have to try to preach. Have you ever heard of like the 20, whatever it is, or 2023 or something like that, where they think that, you know, where Jesus says here, and this gospel will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. There are some Christians teaching that if we have we reach all the people of the world, all the various groups of the world with the gospel, then the end will come. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that at the end, the Jews will actually, the 144,000 will preach to the entire world the gospel of the kingdom in, in contrast to the Antichrist, and when they preach and finish their job, then the end will come. The end is the return of Christ. The Christians teaching, oh, if we go and preach to every, find every tribe in the middle of the Congo and South America and all this place, if we preach to them, then the end's going to come. It's got nothing to do with it. In the context here, they're talking about the tribulation period and the Jews, not the church, and our day. Do you see the point where you actually can get things completely mixed up? Look at verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. Now notice how it says, whoso readeth, let him understand. You know why? Because they're going to be living in that day. This is, this is instruction for people who are in Israel living, watching the temple going up. All this, they're in the middle of this whole stuff. And then Jesus, and Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation going up in the temple, look, it says in verse, in, uh, in verse 16, then let them which be in, where? Judea. Where's Judea? Is that, the, is that near Woolert? No. That's in Israel. Now, why is he talking about Israel for here? Let them flee into the mountains. Verse 17, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Why? Well, this makes zero sense if it's talking about people living in Melbourne. Where are we going to run to? Mount Hotham? Well, where are you going to run to here? Well, which direction are we running? But over there, it makes perfect sense to run to the mountains, to flee out of that area, because what's going on here? I'll explain to you what's, what's going to happen. Verse 20. And when you shall see... Sorry, actually, now turn with me to Luke chapter 21, just, just, as, just as a side thing, because Luke now gives us an extra bit of information, and we'll then... We'll, um, about what's happening and why they have to start running. Because you might think to yourself, oh, when, they, when the abomination of desolation is set up, you know, and they've, they've put that up there, that they should start running. Why should they start running? Well, Luke actually has a parallel passage, and it probably explains a little bit more about why. Because Luke 21.20 tells us 
And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are on the midst of, uh, in the midst of it depart out, and let, none, uh, let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. Do you see it's the same, the same passage? Jesus is saying, Luke's added something else that Jesus says, which Matthew doesn't. He says that at that time, what's going to happen is that Jerusalem is then going to be surrounded with armies because the Jews are not going to want to have that, that idolatrous thing in their temple. And so what's going to happen? The world is going to react. The Antichrist is going to send his armies into Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, when you see that happening, run for the hills. And if you're in the country areas, don't bother to come in. Stay out because it's going to be mayhem there. So Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And they would have, I'm sure that, that when they saw army, the Roman armies around them, they would have probably thought, well, this is the, this is the, the, um, the verification of that or fulfillment of that, but not necessarily. But it's the same thing about, remember, Antiochus Epiphanes? Antiochus Epiphanes set up an idol of Zeus in the temple. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Well, there's not much desolation than that. There's not many more things worse you can do than that. But he wasn't the Antichrist. He's a forerunner too. And the same thing happened with the Romans. They're almost like a precursor or, or, a, or a picture of this is what's going to happen. So the Jews have got it locked in their head. This is what's going to happen. Because these last days will show something very, very different, but altogether worse. So... It says, let's go to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah records what will happen during this time. And it's going to scatter the Jews once again and place them under severe tribulation and captivity. And I suspect that what this also means is they're going to actually have the Jews in concentration camps around the world. They're going to be shipped out and they're going to be in concentration camps. Zechariah 14.1 and 14.2 says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So half of the city is going to go into captivity. They're going to leave the other half there. But this is going to be a difficult time because Jerusalem will be surrounded. Now, when is it going to be surrounded? Is this right at the end? Well, no, it's not. Because Jesus says that when you see the abomination of desolation in the holy place, get ready to run. Is that at the end of the tribulation, the end of the three and a half years, or, or the beginning? It's at the beginning, not at the end. The abomination of desolation is set up at the halfway point of the thing, not at the end. So what's happening? They're surrounded by armies. The Antichrist wants his capital, and the Jews are getting his way. Let's go back to Matthew. Turn back to Matthew in 24, Matthew 24, verse 20. 
the picture here, whether it's in Zechariah, whether it's in Isaiah, whether it's in Matthew or Luke, is all focusing on Israel. It's all focusing on the Holy Land, as we call it. And Jesus actually says now in verse 20, but pray ye that your flight be not in, which means you're running away, be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation. So the great tribulation has begun in earnest. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Who's he speaking to here? What's the Sabbath day got to do with anything? Because the Jews rest on a Sabbath day. Christians don't meet on a Sabbath day. It's the Jews. And he says, he, and he, and he says, pray that it's not in the middle of winter when it's freezing cold and you have to run with nothing, with, with nothing, okay, because it's going to be freezing cold. But also I hope it's not the Sabbath day because if you want to keep the Sabbath and you can't move and nothing's moving, you can't, you might not be able to get out. And then he says, and then shall be great tribulation. So at that point, the great tribulation starts and it will be the worst time in the history of the world. Those three and a half years, apart from the Antichrist actually going completely berserk, Okay, and wanting to kill every believer on the planet. There'll be wars all over the place. God is going to be pouring out his wrath on the world as well. The plagues that you read about in Revelation are mostly poured out in that last three and a half years. When a third of the oceans die, a third of the grass is burnt and trees are burnt, the waters go foul and everything else turns turns really, really bad. And it's, it coincides with the release of those devils from that from that pit. And they start running right as well. So now we see this another indication of why this is pointing to the Jews. He will be in danger of being deceived by the false prophet and antichrist. The Greeks seek after wisdom and the Jews seek for a sign. Okay? Nothing's changed. So those who are faithful Jews, okay, who are still sticking to the Old Testament, are looking for a sign. And so Jesus is now going to warn who about something. He's going to warn them. Look at his, what he says in verse 23, because the Jews are still waiting for their Messiah to come. And what they're looking for are the signs of a Messiah. Okay, They're looking for that. So look what he says in verse 23. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they, should, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Why is he giving them this warning? Because the Jews are still looking for a sign. And so what's the Antichrist and what are the false prophets going to be doing? They're going to be doing signs. By the power of the devil, they're going to be performing devilish, demonic, miraculous signs to deceive them. And Jesus warns them, if they say to you that Christ is over here or over there or whatever, wherever they tell you, he's not on the earth. Don't believe them, regardless of whatever signs and miracles they're actually doing for you. Who's he warning? 
he's warning them because they're the ones that are looking for a sign. We're not looking for any signs here, are we? If he came today, if the Antichrist came today and the false prophet came today doing signs and miracles, what would you and I be saying about it? Would we be in any danger of saying, oh, that might be the real Messiah? Really? Zero chance. If you're a born-again believer who believes in the word of God, you are not going to be fooled by a false prophet doing signs and wonders. You are not going to be fooled by someone who says, oh, you know, the, the Messiah is now, you know, in America. It's going to be fooled, are we? Because it sounds silly to us. Where are they going to say the Messiah is? Oh, in Italy. It even sounds more stupid, doesn't it? Where's he going to be? In Victoria or whatever? No, because we know the Messiah is not on the earth. We, are, we know that he's in heaven waiting to return. So who are these for? These are for the Jews who are still waiting for a Messiah who are sort of stuck between this place. Look at that guy. He's doing all the miracles. What do I do? Do I believe him or do I believe no, now they're gonna, they've got a warning directly from this. So imagine when someone opens up this Bible and it says there, if you're in Judea and you see the armies, run away. If you see the abomination of desolation, get ready to run. If, you, if they tell you the Messiah is here, don't believe them. The Messiah is not there. Get ready to do this. This is an instruction book for those who are caught in this time. And so that's why it says, whosoever readeth, let them understand. Because you're living in the middle of it, which we aren't. And so even the elect are going to be, they're going to be confused about that. So Jesus tells them, don't be confused. And look at what he says. He says, don't looking for him on the earth, look up in the sky. Because that's where I'm going to be coming from. So in verse 27, he says, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered. Wherever the dead bodies are, that's where the, they go to feed. Right? Don't worry about the world. Everything's dead here. It's, it's going to be dying. Um, look up to the heavens. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is what you're going to see. Shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, crying, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus will come back to the earth, so they'll see his sign. I get the impression when I read Revelation and I read, that they're actually going to see him before he actually gets on that horse to come down. Because it actually says they're going to see, they're going to see him, that heavens are going to be opened. So somehow God's going to open up the window in heaven and the world's going to look and see what's going on. And they're going to have a chance to say, oh, what's, what's that? What? That's him. And he's not going to look happy. And while he's, they see him and possibly the armies of heaven ready to come down, then when they start moving, they're going to be absolutely terrified. And that's why Revelation says that, and I saw the beast in Revelation 19, 19. It says, and I saw 
the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his armies. That's what they're doing there. The devil's already, the, the, the Antichrist is already taking Jerusalem at the beginning of the of their great tribulation, right? Of the three and a half, three and a half years, he's been running right all over the place. The Jews have tried to resist him. I'm not sure how well they, they, they're able to do that, but they're going to be persecuted from one end of, of the earth to the other, okay? And now we have a situation where it's coming to the end and there's a sign in heaven. The armies of the devil, the armies of the Antichrist, 200 million of them are all focused on one point, not to destroy Jerusalem. It says to fight against him who's on the horse, to fight against Christ. Now, imagine what sort of motivation you have to have to actually fight against him with the against the armies of heaven. Now, I'm not sure what devilish lie they're going to convince this army about. Maybe they'll say, this is uh, the UFOs coming to, coming to try to destroy us or some other civilization trying to come to destroy us. I don't know what type of lie they're going to feed, but remember, there are 50 million, roughly estimate, of devils that will be inhabiting men, that will be possessing them and doing amazing things by the looks of it and doing miracles. And these people are going to be so convinced they have to fight against that one who's in heaven. And so that's why we read today Psalm 2.1. It says, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing, a stupid thing? It's stupid. It says, the kings of the earth, in Psalm 2.2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That's what they want to do. They want to get God out of the picture. They don't want to be told what to do. They're happy to follow the Antichrist. They've made their choice. They've had their mark. And now they, they want to be, they want God out of the picture completely. They don't want him to come back. So the devil's convinced them they have to fight for their independence. And so God says he laughs from heaven. He laughs. Like, what are you thinking? You know, what, what are you stupid? I'm going to still put my king on my hill. He's still going to rule the entire world, regardless of what you think you're going to do, regardless of how many devils you have backing you up, regardless of how many people you have in your army, whether it's 200 million or 10 or a billion, you can't defeat me. So God laughs from heaven and says, I'm going to put my, my king on my hill. And that's going to happen. And so turn with me to Joel, because Joel gives us the description of that. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. I'm going to read for you just some descriptive passages about what that battle will look like. And it's not pretty. Joel chapter 3 verse 1. It says, for behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage. Who? Israel. Not the church, Israel. 
whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Look at verse 9. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together around about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes, 200 million, in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. This is the single one event that casts down the thrones that the devil has set up. This is the final death knell for the devil's system. The, 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 the rule of the Antichrist. The valley of Jehoshaphat will be the scene of an enormous battle that, result, that will result in the overthrow of all earthly kingdoms to be replaced by the kingdom of our Lord. The valley of decision. They made their decision. They've come down. They've headed there. They want God off their shoulders. And God says, I will I'll reward you with exactly what you want. And this is the final battle between heaven and hell will look at will be this time. The Lord, the Bible says, if you notice it says the Lord roars out of Zion, you think, hang on a sec, but isn't isn't the Lord coming from heaven? You know where he lands? He lands on. He lands on the Mount of Olives and he fights. He fights for his people. It says the Lord shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Look at Zechariah chapter 14 verse 3 with me. And you'll understand who it is that's roaring out of Zion, out of Jerusalem and fighting this army. Zechariah 14 verse 3. Scripture is absolutely amazing. Zechariah 14, 3, and says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave, shall split in the middle thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. Now, I don't know how big Jesus is here. But when his feet land on that, that mount, it's going to split in half. 
and create a huge valley in the middle of it. Now, I'm going to give you a description here of this battle, God comparing it to a wine press. And if Jesus is like this and he lands on top of that mountain and splits that mountain in half and creates a massive valley in the middle and he goes to fight, um, the picture is, do you remember how they used to make wine in the old days? That's the picture. That's the picture. So the return of Christ fulfills what the angels told the 120 disciples that were with him on Mount on the Mount of Olives. Do you remember? When Jesus was with, I think it was 500 even, when it was Jesus was with his, before he ascended into heaven and his disciples were with him and they saw him going up in a cloud and then they saw him disappear. The angels, you know, came around and said, what are you guys looking up in the sky for? And they said, this, this Jesus, the same way he went up, is going to come down. Where did he ascend from? The Mount of Olives. Where the place is going to return? On the Mount of Olives. Is he going to return the same way he left? No way. He's, he went up with marks on his hands as the Lamb of God, seeking to be the Savior of the world. When he comes back, the Bible says he comes back like a roaring lion. He's going to be tearing apart his enemies. This is going to be a very different person that we are used to. But he will do it to rescue his people and to finally claim this world for himself because he's the rightful king. The Lord shall roar out of Zion because he literally will land on it. And he's going to fight the armies of darkness. He will quite literally tread down the grapes of wrath in the winepress of God. Look at verse 12 in Zechariah 14. You should already be in Zechariah 14. Have a look at how these people die too. This is, and this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. What's going to happen? They're going to turn on each other. They're going to turn on each other and they're going to literally die standing on their feet. Whatever way the, the Lord's going to destroy them, because it mentions a sword coming out of his mouth, is going to literally, by the looks of it, consume them while they're standing. They are literally going to be carcasses standing on, on their feet. And that's a terrible way to go by the looks of it. Um, but the carnage, I'm not sure if you can imagine that happening to 200 million men. What would that look like? What would be the result of those many deaths in that one area? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. A little bit more to go and we're done. It says, 
Revelation 14, 18 says, And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for their grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, which means outside the city of Jerusalem. And the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Let me give you some, some numbers here, just to give you an idea. They've got a 200 million man army with all their weapons and tanks or whatever else they got there. And if I'm correct, and, as, and these are square furlongs that are being said here, this is an 18 kilometer by 18 kilometer roughly area. You know how big 18 by 18 is? In that are going to be 200 million men, which will be essentially destroyed. And it says the blood will flow, well, the bottom of the horse's bridle, from what I've been able to understand, is about 30 centimeters from the ground. Blood flowing 30 centimeters high off the ground from a 200 million man army that's been essentially squashed. Not a good look. Not a good look. And what what's interesting um, is the the level of detail the Bible gives us about this one particular battle. Um, Ezekiel prophesies even how long it's going to take them to clean up. Actually, turn with Ezekiel chapter 39. After this battle, what do you do with all these dead bodies? With all this rotting flesh? It tells us two things in Ezekiel here in chapter 39. It says how long they're going to be burning all the equipment that was brought there, whether it's the fuel, the wood, the whatever else it is. Israel is going to be burning that stuff for quite a while to destroy it and to use it as fuel for themselves. But then it also says how long it takes them to bury all those people. Ezekiel 39.8 says, Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day where I've, I have spoken. I told you about this day. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers and the bows and the arrows and the handstaves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire. Seven years they're going to be burning there. All, right? all that stuff, destroying all that stuff. Verse 10, so that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut in any of the forests, for they shall burn the weapons with fire and they shall spoil those that spoiled them, and rob those that robbed them, saith the Lord God. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of graves. Gog is Russia in Israel. The valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the... Do you know what happens when you have rotting flesh? Do you know what happens when you have people just corpses just sitting there? It smells. Okay, it's going to stop their noses of the passengers, and they shall, and there shall they bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it the Valley of Hamongog. 
and seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them that they may cleanse the land. And it goes, it gives more detail later on. It actually says when they find there's going to be people working day and night putting markers where all the bones are, okay, so they know to collect them, so that other people know how to collect them so they can bury them later on. They're going to be clearing up that field. That's a pretty big area, roughly 18 by 18 kilometers to clear up of all the dead bodies and bones and all the destruction and all the and all the uh, weapons and everything that are going to be there. Seven years they'll be burning the stuff and for seven months they'll be burying people. And so it's no wonder Revelation says, you know, gather in, in Revelation 19, 17, it says, gather yourselves under the great supper of the great king. It says that you may eat, the, it, it, it calls the birds to come and eat. It says that you shall eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, small and great. There's going to be uh, a lot of ravenous birds that get to eat a lot after that. So let me close with these thoughts. The return of Christ is not like the first coming. Very, very different. When Jesus rode into Israel, meek and mild on the donkey to present himself as their king, they rejected him. Now he comes riding on a white horse and he comes riding to destroy all those who have tried to destroy his people. Okay. Now, the good news for us is that we're going to be riding with him. All right. We're going to be with him. So he calls all the saints from one end of heaven to the other end of heaven to come and ride with him. And so we'll be, we'll be but this will be, uh, I don't know what sort of a spectacle is going to be. I'm not sure how we're going to, to view it, but it will be utter destruction for the armies of the Antichrist and the devil. So Jesus was rejected first by his own people. But you know what's beautiful about the ending? It's that he's come to rescue his own people. And to show himself strong as their king in the end. And that's the, the wonder of God's word. Turn with me, just, just one, one more passage to John 18. John 18, because Jesus describes the difference now between what we have seen in him and what we will see. So Jesus has been brought before Pilate. He's been betrayed by his own people, rejected by his own people. And Pilate says here in verse 33, John 18, 33, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And I want you to notice something. He says, But now is my kingdom not from hence. Now my kingdom is not from here, but later on it will be. 
Then they rejected him, but after they will accept him. They didn't receive him as their king the first time, but they will call on him as their king in the end. And he will come to save his people and judge this world. And he will judge it in righteousness. And so we see the beauty of the repentance of Israel. I mean, God has been working with Israel for how long? From, from Abraham's time until now. And his people have rejected him, turned their back on him, come back to him, gone, left him, come back to him, gone. He has judged them over and over and over and over again. And now for 2,000 years, they've rejected Jesus as their king. But in the end, even the apostle Paul says, they will come. There will be a repentance in Israel. And this is what we see happening in the book of Revelation. They will turn to him. One day, the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our Lord. And that's the message for next week when we, when we look at the millennial kingdom. When after this battle, after this war, he will set up his government. The Antichrist will have been destroyed and the false prophet, the devil will be locked up. We're going to see everything this world will become during those thousand years. But my message to you today is that do you know who your king is? Do you Have you received Jesus as your king today? Have you received him as your saviour now? He is both Lord and saviour, right? He is not one or the other. He is the Lord, the King, the Son of God. He is the saviour of the world. And so my, my question to you is, have you already bowed the knee to him as your king? Have you received him as your saviour? If you haven't, the Bible says that one day every knee will bow. Every knee. Those who have already received him and those who will be forced to receive him. And so my, my, my plea to you is to receive him as your king today. If you receive him as your king, as your saviour, he will be your rock. He will be your fortress. He will be your shepherd for your entire life. There is nothing that will be able to separate you from his love. But do you ever want to be in a position where he will be your judge? And I, my prayer for you is that you will not ever see him as your judge. Repent and turn today. Um, receive Christ as your saviour and you'll receive eternal life as a gift. Receive it. If you're not sure about it, do it. Make sure about it. And if you need to know anything else about it, um, happy to talk to you. Happy to send any emails or whatever to church uh, and discuss these things with you. But let's not, let's be the ones who are riding back from heaven with him one day. God bless you. Brother Donald, would you